You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths taught in school and on corporate media. Today on the show, we have Doug Henwood, who is a journalist and economist who analyzes the economy from a leftist perspective. But remember, he's not a modern monetary theorist. So today we're talking about the history of neoliberalism or like how it came to be. So whenever we start talking about neoliberalism, what happened with George McGovern and how did that start that uh, trail down? Neoliberalism? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's neoliberalism in the American context and neoliberal in the global context. Yep. Then you're thinking about the neoliberals in the American context, the early 80s Democrats. Who yeah. Were, Unless uh, you want to go Charles back. Charles Peters and the Washington Monthly and all that nonsense. They, uh, they decided they were going to be friend, mm-hmm. business-friendly Democrats. They were going to throw all the New Deal stuff uh, out. And it started in the 70s, mid-70s, after the, the loss of George McGovern uh, in the 72 presidential election. Um, so, you know, it's funny, uh, the, there's a specifically American meaning of liberalism, which is what most of the parts of the world is called something like social democracy. Uh, just, uh, you know, and the rest of the world, liberalism means free market policies. Exactly. So Americans are confused when when they hear the term liberalism. When Milton Friedman tried to revive the use of the word liberalism in the original sense, 19th century free market, small state kind of thing, Americans were confused by that because to liberals, to them, liberals meant Lyndon Johnson and Franklin Roosevelt and the creators of what passes for a welfare state in the United States. Then when McGovern lost in 72, all these Democrats like, Said, oh, we need to be more centrist, we need to appeal to the right, we need to be more business-friendly. So that, starting with the group of people who were elected to Congress in 1974, gave birth to this idea of neoliberalism, which was they're going to be business-friendly. They would care about social justice to some degree, but basically we're going to be business-friendly, pro-Wall Street, strong in defense. That then became the Democratic Leadership Conference, you know, and the, Bill Clinton and all this business. But there's another strand of neoliberalism, of course, came out of Europe, which is a different, not unrelated, but a different ball of wax. So you want to talk about that side of neoliberalism, too? Of course. Yeah, well, that, um, I can highly recommend reading Quinn Slobodian's book on this, uh, because he really details the history. And, and, you know, it's a really excellent intellectual history of neoliberalism. So, uh, you know, I'm cribbing from him. Also, Philip Murawski's book, Don't Let a Good Crisis Go to Waste, I believe it's called, which came out from Verso a few years ago. And then also Foucault's lectures on biopolitics, which are really about Gary Becker and the Chicago School and also the German School of Order Liberalism. Really very interesting. Actually, Mark Blythe, um, when he came on our podcast, he talked a little bit about Odo liberalism too. And so Austerity, a Dangerous History also talks a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the German version of it, which because of the strength of socialism and social democracy in Germany, I think they had to make more compromises than the American neoliberals did. So, but anyway, this, if you take Slobodian's history, he actually takes it back into Vienna in 1907, I believe it was. Uh, but this more standard um, history is that it got launched after World War II at this conference at Mont Pelerin, which is a Swiss resort on Lake Geneva. This group of people convened by Hayek and von Mises, and uh, including Milton Friedman, and you know, these people who had then later become very famous, were distressed by the idea that socialism was taking over the world or social democracy was taking over the world and that economic planning 
even not just of a Soviet sort, but there was a lot of successful planning in the United States during World War II. The, the private economy was largely taken over and run for the benefit of the war effort. So, you know, the idea of government planning and stabilization of the economy and you know, government direction of investment and production emerged in World War II with a fairly high level of prestige, both among the public and also among elites. So um, the people around Hayek and, and von Mises and uh, these characters, uh, the Mont Pelerin Society, I think there are about 40 or 50 of them at the first meeting, really devised a long-term plan to reverse this. Um, they were very distressed by these trends of egalitarianism and planning, uh, and they wanted to return to an old order of doing things. But they were very, very sophisticated and knew that, contrary to the, the dreams of some ideologists, there's nothing natural about the market. It's not a spontaneous social order. So they realized it had to be imposed, or their vision of a new version of the market, the neo part of the liberalism, had to be uh, imposed by uh, political action. Or as Slobodian puts it, I think very usefully, they wanted to insulate the market from political interference, but they realized they had to do that politically. It required political action to prevent the kind of politics they wanted to happen. So they really were very careful about going about this. They were not um, just um, simple-minded free marketeers of the sort we see in, in great abundance today. And they also, not only did they have this, you know, vision of the world they wanted to see, but they had a very clear idea of how to get there. So they devised this you know, notion of kind of like layers of intellectual and political influence. And this, you know, this sounds conspiratorial, but it's true. Uh, <laughs> they decided, you know, they, people like them, the intellectual elite, were going to devise these grand schemes and these grand theories and these grand reasons for them. And then you need like a middle level of people to work out details, and, you know, in academia and think tanks and such mm -hmm. and that. And then you need a, like a, a layer of popularizers to spread the doctrine. And you can see this in, in the present. And in, in the United States, the Koch brothers, uh, who have been funding right-wing politics in this country for like 40 years, adopted a very, very similar model. Um, the same idea of funding intellectual elites, funding um, university research institutes, and then funding think tanks to spread the doctrine and then creating, you know, all kinds of journalism to, 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 to disseminate it. So, you know, these people, you know, it's, it's, it's easy for people on the left to think these people are craven idiots, but in fact, they're actually quite sophisticated. And, uh, you know, I finished Slobodian's book with a distinct admiration for the rigor of their thought. I mean, it's repulsive. Their social order is repulsive to me, but you have to respect the fact that these are very, very serious and sophisticated people. I always make this joke that Stalin's worst mistake was not sending Fred Koch to the gulag. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and then he was there found, helping found the John Birch Society. Uh, oh, yeah. One thing that's really interesting to me, at least, is trying... Uh, Mark Blythe actually went over a little bit of the uh, Montpellier conference when he was on our show. One thing that would be interesting is how much fascist adjacency was there? Well, um, they... I mean, in one sense, they found the Nazi economy, economy appalling because it was so state-driven. Um, and you know, a lot of them are Jewish, so they were not very fond of that aspect of, <laughs> of Nazism. But, you know, they've never been ones to shrink from the need for authoritarian politics to get their way. So they prefer, I think their ideal is a kind of managed or very limited democracy in which people have the feeling of being listened to, but they're not actually listened to which is, you know, the, the American order, basically, yeah. uh, in which you know, everything is set up to minimize popular influence over important stuff. 
and maximize elite influence over political economy, you know, the core issues of political economy. So that's their preference. But you know, they certainly, uh, notoriously, rallied around Pinochet in Chile. Yep. Uh, and uh, Now uh, Bolsonaro. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just the, the Bolsonaro um, thing is like, the, the mildest kind of social democracy that Lula represented was, you know, too much for the Brazilian elite, uh, and uh, um, you know, they're they're intent on rolling all that back in the crudest crudest fashion. Yeah, um, actually, it just kind of reminds me of your article about Harvard and the fascism you encountered when you were at Harvard. Oh, that was I was at Yale. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, um, I was in the party of the right. Yeah, when I was a, a freshman at Yale. Um, which was founded in the early 50s and was an extremely marginal operation. And I was in college in the early 1970s, and I, uh, I had this weird conversion when I was in uh, late high school uh, where I became a right-winger. My parents were both New Deal Democrats, and I was some kind of pinko commie. And they, um, but like in this, my senior year in high school, I decided I was going to become a conservative. And so when I got to Yale, I joined this Party the Right formation, which was a mix of uh, about a dozen oddballs or so, ranging from crazy libertarians who were uh, almost you know, on the verge of anarchism to uh, actual monarchists who wanted to have uh, royalty in the United States. But never far from the surface was the Nazi question. So when I first was in the party, it was like the beginning of freshman year. Someone that was sitting around with my POR comrades, uh, looking through what was then <laughs> the Facebook on printed paper. And... You know, there's one guy who's just like analyzing the bone structure of the women's skulls. Like, oh, she looks intelligent because she had a high forehead. You know, there's like a better brow. And it was always done in a kind of jokey, ironic manner. But, you know, they were serious, underlying. There was the underlying politics that were quite serious. And the German department had a screening of uh, Lenny Riefenstahl's Triumph of the Will. And nobody from the German department actually went to it. It was just about, you know, five or seven of us people from the party of the right that went to it. And it was all in good fun, you know, Nazis, ha, ha, ha. But, um, you know, that was, it's never far from the surface, uh, that, uh, uh, that combination of um, the, the use of force to repress people who are going to um, interfere with your market utopia, but also a worship of hierarchy, you know, really strong, masculinized hierarchy is really at the core of that kind of right-wing politics. And I remember when I went to the 50th anniversary party uh, of the Party of the Right, probably about 2004, maybe, I think it was. And there's this ritual in the party of passing around a big silver cup to toast. And one of the guys got up and said, he looked Jewish, I don't know, you know, I was worried, you know, there was always this question of the Aryans just below the surface. And he was like joking and everybody laughed uneasily. But, it, you know, it was funny that he actually brought up this, you know, kind of indiscreetly brought up this issue. But, yeah, um, these people who profess libertarianism, a belief in liberty, really do have this deep authoritarian streak. And Milton Friedman's grandson, Patry Friedman, I think that's how you pronounce his name, had an essay uh, some years ago in the Cato Institute's magazine in which he said, very frankly, that libertarianism and democracy are completely incompatible because libertarianism is very unpopular. Only a small portion of the population is going to like this stuff. So if you want to be free, 
you have to be undemocratic. And so when they, and, and Hayek himself too, like it's very clear that what is important is freedom for the best people. So when they talk about liberty, they don't mean it for the masses. They mean it for what they think of as the best people, which means, you know, the ones who could make a lot of money. <laughs> I mean, that's what I've noticed, at least the way in America where they use the word democracy. Because if you have true democracy, we've seen it a thousand times with Mossadegh, Kasim, Allende, people will always vote to make sure that they're no longer exploited by American corporations. Yes, as Henry Kissinger said, no country should be allowed to go communist due to the irresponsibility <laughs> of its own people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there seems to be a limit on that. And with Milton Friedman, I guess he's, at least for Americans, he seems more unabashed or at least more open with his agenda. Do you believe that? Or what, what about the other two from the Austrian school? Well, Friedman was, was quite a, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say this because um, Hayek's Road to Serfdom was a bestseller, which was promoted by the Reader's Digest magazine in the 1950s. So he was a, a popularizer, but Milton Friedman was a very visible figure in the U.S. in the 70s in particular. And the 70s were a period where, started by talking about the American neoliberals in the class of 74 in Congress and this kind of growth of this business-friendly Democratic Party. But it was a time when inflation was rising and the economy was in pretty bad shape. And it was not, you're not supposed to see these two things together. You're not supposed to see a stagnation in the economy and inflation at the same time. People had always thought inflation came when the economy was too strong and it needed to be cooled down. But so nobody could figure out what to do about this stagflation situation. And Milton Friedman became president of the American Economics Association. Can't remember, sometime in the 70s, can't remember what year. And his presidential address really was the introduction of, of this kind of new thinking, new kind of free market thinking to the profession, the previously dominant Keynesian paradigm, post-World War II Keynesian paradigm, which thought you know, that the government should do its best to maintain full employment got junked because they came to believe that, to put it crudely, the problem with the economy is that the working class was not scared enough, that they were making too many demands, uh, that there was just not enough of an increase in productivity, there was too much of an increase in wages and benefits, far outstripping productivity, and this resulted in inflation, and this needed to be stopped. And so Friedman was a very effective popularizer of this agenda. So within his own profession, he was a very important figure, but also he had a column in Newsweek, which was widely read. He um, you know, did TV shows. Insofar as an economist can become a, a household name, he became one. And so he's much more visible to the American public than somebody like Hayek was, who was by that time also quite old. But they had a lot in common. But although um, Hayek looked down his nose at the kind of economics that Friedman practiced, he didn't like that kind of very technical economics with like equations and not lots and lots of numbers. He is much more of a, I don't know, combination of some kind of vitalism. <laughs> but yeah, he didn't like that, that kind of technical economics. So there were splits between that Austrian branch and the American monetarist branch. But, you know, in practice, the policies would be more or less the same. How did they, it seems like now they've captured most of the economic departments in the university to the point where some economics departments are kind of Scientology-like in their belief in the free market. Like, how did that happen? <laughs> um, that's a good question. I, I think, well, there, there is, economics these days is getting somewhat better, actually. They're much more interested in empirical reality. There's less of this 
pure theory, uh, math-driven stuff. So, I mean, there are positive developments in the profession. I don't follow it as closely as I used to because I got kind of bored with all that stuff. I got much more interested in like the sociology of classes and things like that, and, and, and politics, and like the kind of heavily numerical economics. Just I lost a lot of interest in that. But it became, you know, I don't want to be too crude about these things, but the needs of the elites, the ruling class in the 1970s was to crack down on the working class, and they wanted intellectual justifications for doing that. And you know, if you look at how economics is funded, you know, it's elite foundations and things like that, or that are the ones who determine the direction of a lot of it. Elite economics departments, which are dominated, you know, look at the board of trustees of a, you know, an Ivy League university. Mm. Um, they're all like, you know, corporate elites. So it's, and they don't really care so much what the English department is doing. Exactly. Uh, they, you can, they can, you know, play harmlessly with deconstruction and, and Marx flavored, you know, criticism or whatever, or queer theory or anything. And I don't mean to demean that. I like that stuff a lot and I, I've learned a lot from it. But to elites, they don't care. It's like people just, you know, being irresponsible and playing around. The really important stuff is what happens in, you know, economics and political science. And those departments are uniformly, with very few exceptions, quite orthodox. Yeah. The first time. I've ever heard of like a Marxian economist was with Richard Wolff. And I was like, wow. Um, <laughs> so yeah, in economics departments, it seems like they teach the supply demand as though it were a state of nature, as opposed to something designed by science. It's yes. science yes. It, it, and it's not the state of nature. You can No, that. I remember I had to, I took when I, my first economics course in um, college was, it was introductory microeconomics. It was taught, which is where you get all those curves and the supply <laughs> demand stuff. And it was taught by this guy who uh, studied comparative economic systems. It was a time when people thought there would be some kind of convergence between Soviet-style systems and capitalist systems. So there's like a lot of interest in comparing economic systems. And he had some sympathy with Maoist China. So this guy was not your standard issue uh, you know, free market economist at all. So like he just, you know, the last class, he's like tying together all these different kinds of theories and drawing curves on the blackboard. And the very last line of the class was, of course, this has nothing to do with the real world. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's like, he's, he is right just because economics, like the, you can choose to describe things the way you want. And it's not the state of nature. I mean, when John Locke came over, his theory was to like help the the merchant class, and he kind of ignored the pro. pro so yeah. They, well, I mean, it's like you know, we were saying earlier about Hayek. I, they know it's not the state of nature. It has to be created. Markets just do, do not arise spontaneously, like, like flowers in the spring. You know? Yeah. How did these economic? I, I guess from the forties to the seventies. Did these economic institutions in America just pop up like that? Or what was the effort? Was there a big lobbying effort to get government to create it? Or? Well, you know, I, don't, I, I can't say I could tell you the entire history of that. But what I would say is that, you know, this is all a result of the Depression and World War II. So uh, the, the collapse of the system in, in between 29 and 32 shook everybody's faith in the kind of 19th century textbook capitalism that had prevailed. And uh, Keynes, of course, became a very influential figure with the general theory and other works. And government saw that if they spent a lot of money, you could like, end the Depression. Mm -hmm. uh, Hitler did that very effectively. And Keynes wrote a preface to the German edition of the general theory, which most Keynesians don't like to talk about. But he said something like, well, 
a government like yours can do all these things much more easily than you know, government in the U.S. or, or, or Britain <laughs> because they didn't have to worry about offending any sensibilities. But just you know that kind of big spending and uh, repression of finance uh, and the deficits during the New Deal were not that big. I mean, they're 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 smaller than they are now in the United States. But the kind of you know the spending on public works uh, and the employment programs of the New Deal really did turn the economy around didn't quite end the depression, but it did an awful lot to get close to it. So coming out of that period, the depression and then World War II, you know, there's this massive mobilization, which was, in which the government took over, I think, effectively owned something like a quarter of industrial production and then pretty much dominated the rest. So that sense, you know, we can do this. We can marshal the productive forces of this economy in ways that serve the public purpose, whether it's recovering from depression or fighting World War II, and they think, oh, this works. Mm -hmm. And so there was a pretty broad consensus that the government then had the responsibility to stabilize the economy to prevent a recurrence of the 1930s. So there was a lot of anxiety coming out of the war that when there was demobilization from the war and spending went back to more normal civilian levels, that the depression would return. So there was a lot of, then of course, there's anxiety that if the government spends too generously on civilian things, that will um, undermine class discipline. So, you know, the compromise, and this was quite consciously devised, was military Keynesianism. We're going to use the military budget and the permanent war economy to inject spending into the economy that will prevent depression and actually stir technological progress uh, in a way that reinforces social hierarchies rather than threatening to undermine them. So that... This consensus lasted into the 70s, and then that's when the inflation started going and stagflation set in. So the elites organized very effectively in the 70s, said we need a new model, we need to crack down, we need to, like, uh, we need to diminish expectations and break the power of the working class. And you know, so that we got this agenda of deregulation and tight money and uh, idea that the government really didn't need to manipulate the business cycle so carefully. And, you know, so this is the developments of the last 35 years or so that are all too familiar to people in their daily lives came out of that crisis of the 70s and this um, elite crackdown prescription to address it. I have two questions. My theory is actually that there's also a stick in the name of the Soviet Union. Yes, that's absolutely true. And I, I, I reproach myself for having forgotten to mention that. Thank you for reminding <laughs> me. Uh, yeah, there was a couple of things going on. One is that there was this alternative model for organizing economies. And going well into the 1960s, into, even into the 70s, people you know, thought the Soviet Union was growing rather strongly and catching up in material and technological terms to the West. And it was also a model for uh, what we used to call the third world. I mean, countries that had been colonies and were being decolonized. There was a competition for uh, which system they were going to uh, adopt, whether it's going to be a Soviet-style or an American-style system, you know, somewhat crude to make it that much of a binary, but that basically was what it was. Uh, and so uh, there, was, there, were interest, there was interest in American elites but, uh, for uh, softening the system, humanizing it, making it more stable, uh, making it less brutal, uh, being kinder to the masses uh, in order to, to lure uh, these newly formed countries that had just been decolonized. And, and then, of course, the working classes of, these, uh, of the first world countries also said, you know, we want security, we want prosperity, we don't want to live like mill workers in you know, the 1840s. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> the kind of that Engels wrote about it in Manchester. So yeah, um, it was a combination of that that anxiety about domestic political pressures and the international competition and the model of the Soviet Union and its support for revolutionary governments around the world uh, that kept the U.S. somewhat more humane than it would have liked to be. And then when the Soviet Union collapsed, there was no alternative anymore, and so we can just go for the you know go for the gold. Actually, um, I looked at a chart. I'm more of a numbers person, where I looked at the tax rates from like 1916 through the fall of the Berlin Wall. And if you look at it, soon after the Soviet Union began, the tax rates hiked up. It stayed up there. Collapse of the Berlin Wall came like half, like it went half. And then with Clinton, it went another half. So it seems like a lot of the income inequality controls we had was the Soviet Union stick. Well, yeah, there was, there was an influence. I mean, Reagan came through in the first round of big tax cuts in 81. Uh, and then Clinton boosted top tax rates slightly by a couple of percentage points. But yeah, there's just no doubt that the, the kind of plutocratic feeding frenzy we've seen in the last several decades is, uh, could not have happened had the Soviet Union survived. Do, do you want to talk about the Powell mem- memo? Yeah, um, that's a, a famous memo that uh, Lewis Powell, uh, who was then a corporate lawyer in Richmond, Virginia, wrote in what year was that? 73? And he wrote it to, I believe it was the head of the Chamber of Commerce. He was yes. The Chamber he... of Commerce. Yeah. And, you know, people, sometimes people like perhaps overestimate the influence of this individual document. But it was also a symptom of what elites were beginning to think at that time, the early 70s, that this war on capitalism had gone too far. We needed to reassert the beauty of capitalism and its, you know, its, its value as a system. And we needed to begin this large-scale organizing and education campaign, organizing among ourselves as elites and also organizing an education campaign to change what was being taught in colleges, generate a large propaganda campaign on the behalf of capitalism, basically, you know, an ad campaign on, 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 on the virtues of the free market. So around that time, you also saw the creation of these new lobbying groups like the Business Roundtable, um, a bunch of you know, Fortune 500 CEOs. And it was remarkable in that most of the time, the capitalist class doesn't organize itself very well politically. It needs the state and political actors to tell it what to do. They're just so narrowly focused on making money or whatever it is in their industry that they can't think necessarily as a class as a whole. Uh, Sidney Blumenthal, his uh, very good book, The Making of a Counter-Establishment, which is about the rise of the, the right wing of the ruling class. Sydney or Max? The 70s. Oh, no, Sydney, you're right. Sydney, yes. <laughs> Father is Max. Yeah. Um, he quotes Walter Riston, who was the longtime chair of Citibank, saying that we didn't um, think much of Reagan. We were not convinced by him. And it, it took like people in think tanks, uh, right-wing think tanks and such, to really educate people like Riston, the bankers and the CEOs, to the importance of um, political action to uh, you know, improve the standing of capitalists in, in capitalist society. Yeah, um, it seems like in the Powell mem- memo where I've like cut down excerpts, like they talk about having more positive media figures yeah. about court. And, uh, and so it seems like... Powell, who later was appointed to the Supreme Court. Sadly, yeah. yeah, yeah. A- and... Another thing that's really interesting is that he calls Ralph Nader the single biggest threat to American business. Yeah, they it's pretty funny. They didn't like Nader. Um, you know, he was tailed by GE, a GM rather for you know 
decades. <laughs> they just... I believe he once told a story where apparently every hotel he went to, there was a lot of prostitutes around because they wanted to tempt him and catch him in the act. But he was like too smart no matter where he traveled. Um, yes. Um, yeah, they were, I talked to a guy once who, who worked for him for like 20 years who said like, they couldn't catch him because he never did anything. He really was a complete <laughs> straight arrow. He never, like, he was every bit as upstanding as he seemed. You know, sometimes you see people who are really, really upstanding. You think, that guy's got a secret. Uh -huh. You know, he's got some secret vice we don't know about. But I just don't think that's true of Nader. He really is as clean as he, he, he seems to be. Okay. Um, so can we go a little bit towards, I guess, fantasy or future predictions? Um. We see a lot of sabotage from in, like, say, countries like Venezuela and Brazil when there's, like, a leftist in government. If we were to get a leftist, what kind of sabotage can we expect? Oh, my God. Well, I mean, just the very nature of the U.S. governmental system makes it very difficult for somebody with an agenda out of the mainstream to do anything. Mm-hmm. With all the checks and balances, you know, the Senate, the Supreme Court, the federal system with the states having so much power, if by some stand, uh, accident Bernie Sanders, who by um, you know, any objective standard is not like a super radical guy, but to American elites, like he's a Bolshevik. Mm -hmm. So if somehow he got elected, he would have Congress to contend with. It'd be unlikely he'd have a fully sympathetic Congress. The Senate, of course, can block nearly anything. And the structure of the Senate is so profoundly undemocratic and there's no way to abolish it. So it's just it's just impossible to imagine how to get around that thing. And then, of course, you know, the Supreme Court could invalidate any kind of radical legislation if Congress, by some accident, <laughs> passed some radical legislation and the Supreme Court would probably declare it unconstitutional. That's, Roosevelt had to uh, contend with that in, during his presidency. And... Uh, what did Roosevelt end up doing for that? Well, he tried packing the court, like increasing the number of uh, members of the Supreme Court, which was a scandal uh, at the time uh, because you're supposed to leave, you know, sacred. The, 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 the way Americans view the Constitution, oh some gosh. kind of sacred text, is really it's something for uh, the psychoanalyst. It's just nutty. I really wish they would just look up the word what amendment means. Well, they made it deliberately very difficult to amend because... I mean, it's, you know, very far-sighted. It's an 18th century document created by slave owners and property owners to protect the rights of property. slave owners and property owners. <laughs> I mean, they're very clear about that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the Electoral College was designed to preserve that. So, you know, all these things. It, 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 and you go back and read the Federalist Papers, which, you know, kind of the theory that led to the Constitution is very clear about limiting the power of the mob mm -hmm. in the interest of property. The most famous example of that is the Tenth Federalist Paper, where Madison's like talks explicitly about limiting the power of the mob. So, you know, this document it deliberately makes it difficult for any kind of radical democratic um, action to happen. So, say like I said, you had this accident of President Sanders. So he has then this Congress. He has this whole structure to deal with. So, but you know, so then say he try he he actually gets something passed. Then you'd have, you know, the media going after him. You'd have scandals developing. You know, they'd be just trying to find anything they could on him. Just relentless attacks against him. And, you know, I, I hate Donald Trump. I absolutely despise that guy. But you can see what happens when elites don't like a president. Mm -hmm. it, you know, the investigations they've thrown at him. 
To me, if they wanted to find collusion, we can do it in 30 seconds because Neil Flynn went to talk with Erdogan. And then after that, Donald Trump ended up changing his policies towards the YPG. But if they don't want to find collusion because the Democrats are also complicit with the whole Erdogan YPG thing. So now they're conspiracy theorizing. Yeah. But now they're using Russia to tar anything left of center, too. So Me included. Like, yes. <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, yeah, some, I think this happened to both of us. We were declared with 100% certainty to be, to be bots on Twitter, right? Yep, Russian right. bots. Exactly. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, like this guy, I just saw this guy on Twitter the other day, like, saying that anybody opposes Kamala Harris is doing um, Putin's work. <laughs> like, it's just, so anything left is, you know, like, it's, all these old Cold War tropes yeah. about the Soviets have now this second life without communism. So like the Russians, it's got the same kind of psychological and emotional content, but without the actual threat of <laughs> communism. So it's just, it's phenomenal to watch. And then to watch all these Democrats go on and on and on about the Russians. It's just so utterly bizarre. Like there are people on like, I'm not going to name her name, but she's a serious person. She used to be a friend of mine. Like she's a writer, a very serious a PhD from an Ivy League university. Who thinks that Bernie Sanders is a Russian agent? I mean, you know, so you have this. That's a little bit goes towards the old, I don't want to say this, but I will, uh, the old portraits of the big-nosed Bolshevik coming yeah. in and invading. Well, there are also, if you know, if you Google do a Google image search, image search in the terms Russia octopus. Uh -huh. You can see it, and I owe this to Sean Guillory um, for pointing this out to me. This has a long history going back to the 19th century. This image of the Russian <laughs> octopus expanding its tentacles over the European continent and, and the Asian continent as well. It's, I, it's, it's very strange uh, that, that this Russia, I don't know what it is about it. I guess perhaps there's something uncanny about Russia being kind of European and kind of Asian and they speak a language yeah. that's not... It's not, an, uh, it's not like a Western European language. Yeah. They look a little different, but not really, really different. So I guess there's, there is something uncanny about Russians that feels this. It's also an extremely big place with a lot of power. So, and, you know, it's like the... Well, the Soviet Union was a plausible rival to the United States you know, during the Cold War. Russia now, you know, it's a, it's a big country, but it's... It's not what the Soviet Union was in, in geopolitical terms. But th there's something about having this big country that doesn't like us. And you know, the, the U.S. has been, built a ring of bases around Russia. Yeah. Um, They're arming Ukraine. They're doing all these kinds of things all around the Russia. You know, if, could you imagine if the Russians were arming forces in Mexico and had military bases in Canada, the U.S. would just be insane. Yeah. But... Americans always like to see themselves as the under threat. And we're just the innocents. Nobody likes us because of our freedoms. <laughs> exactly. And America... But, you know, just to tie that all up. And so I think a President Sanders or somebody like that would face the combination of that just ossified, deliberately ossified political system of our, that mm -hmm. the Constitution has imposed, plus the incredible insane powers of the media to, 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 to spread this these lunacies and paranoia. It's just breathtaking to watch. For me too, it's breathtaking to watch. I remember last year, let's not mention her name, but she had a screen up saying, these are the 12 Russians in Davos, Switzerland. It's like, that's just 
insane to name random Russian citizens flying, taking a flight. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, they're agents, enemy agents, I'm sure. Exactly. Um, and to me, this is what my theory is, is that like with Trump, like they can't pretend that he is the face of America and the face of America is so ugly. They psychologically need a foreign agent who installed him. That's my opinion. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, the idea that this is not who we are yeah. is so preposterous because everything about what Trump is and does is has deep roots in American politics and culture. I mean, mm-hmm. the combination of, you know, the xenophobia, the wall building, the hostility to immigrants, all that stuff. I and mean, there's a lot of that in American history. So mm-hmm. I like, don't even need to detail. But also the personality of Trump, that kind of bluster and hucksterism. He's like a classic American carnival barker or salesman. I mean, it's just like, the, yeah, the, the politics and his personality are, are so deeply American. Also, the rich guy pretends to be one of the people. Um, and, you know, the, the way he talks up as rich is he's probably nowhere near as rich as he likes to, wants people to believe. It's all, it's just like, he could be some kind of 19th century American figure in a lot of ways. Well, for me, I wonder how much of this is the failure of neoliberalism? If you assume that poor people are less deserving and more immoral, then Trump, by nature, who is rich, seems to automatically be moral. And so then when people... Yeah, but it's funny, like he, you know, the, the, there have been so many public demonstrations of his immorality or amorality, too, like mm-hmm. you know, with the, the pussy-grabbing remarks, but also you know, just the fact that he just doesn't pay his bills. He's cheated people so much over the years. He's a, you know, a liar in, in business. And like and this is all out there. I mean, but to his fans, those things don't matter or they're actually selling points. I've just been reading... Adorno's essay on, on the, the fascism, the appeal of the fascist leader. And I'm, I want to say that Trump is a fascist. That's kind of overdone. But there are affinities. And one of the characteristics of that kind of leader is that he has a lot of the faults of these defective masses. Mm-hmm. So there's this kind of strange identification. Like the people, when, when Hillary called in the deplorables, that only intensified their devotion to Trump, because there's something about that identification, and they look at him, this deplorable on a very grand scale, kind of reflects back a lot of them, their own characteristics. And, <laughs> and so he's this guy, and he's full of resentment. You know, he grew up in Queens. He was rich, but he was never part of the Manhattan elite. The Manhattan elite has never liked him. Uh, Wall Street and real estate people in, in Manhattan have never, he's never been part of their inner circle. Wall Street didn't trust him because he's a you know, serial bankrupt and defaulter. And he's never been part of the inner circle of New York real estate. He's not a member of the Real Estate Board of New York, which is the trade association of big real estate in the city. Uh, so in that sense, he had this outsider resentment to the fancy people of Manhattan. And he was, I think, able to turn that psychology of resentment into some kind of you know, fraudulently populist appeal. So the deplorables see this mega deplorable and um, identifies it. It's it's a weird play of psychology, but it's very effective. Sometimes I think when they say he's telling it like it is, he kind of is. For example, a normal Republican would say, oh, we need to strengthen our borders. He just says, let's keep the Mexicans out. And strengthen our borders is basically, let's keep the Mexicans out. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times it's more effective not to say those things out loud. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, during the, the campaign of 2016, there was some, I can't remember who said this, it was some Republican 
political consultant, pointed out that Hillary Clinton had voted for 700 miles of wall, and Trump wanted 1,000 miles of wall. <laughs> so this guy says, for 300 miles, he's Hitler? <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, a good one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it's kind of a New York Jewish way of putting it, I guess. But... Um, yeah, I mean, it's funny that because the Democrats, and, you know, Obama deported all kinds of people, but he did it, you know, while speaking complete sentences in, <laughs> in ways that would be comfortable in a college seminar room. Yes. Uh, whereas Trump is this crude, loud creature. Well, remember during that debate where he uh, said that the reason that Bill and Hillary came to his wedding was that he had given them money. That's true. And, you know, it's true. He says a lot of things out loud that you're just not supposed to say. And that's part of the scandal of Trump is that he does blurt out these things that are best left unsaid. Yeah. I mean, one thing that, though, I still don't understand about the psychology of whatever addles the democratic brain is that why are they still so wedded to norms and rules when Trump is clearly a brick wall thrown? Yeah, well, that's their worldview. I mean, they believe in process and... Anything that is radical or, or destabilizing or unorthodox makes them very, very nervous. And that's where they can erroneously get the, what do you call it? What, the horseshoe theory, right? Oh, yes. That's the horseshoe theory. God. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, um, I, well, I spent several years on this email discussion list for elite liberal pundits. I was brought on as a kind of diversity hire. They wanted <laughs> a, little, a little different perspective. It did not work out very well. Oh. But... Um, I was struck over and over again by these people that they didn't like the idea of making demands. You shouldn't, like, you should, like it was wrong to ask for single-payer health insurance because that would only lead to the, encourage the right to repeal Obamacare. What? So this, and I, I became very familiar with this mechanism. That, you know, over and over again, you're not supposed to make demands because it only brings out the worst of the right. And, you know, that's what the right does. The right is supposed to, like, it, by its very nature, is, is the enemy of social progress <laughs> and, like, reacts negatively any kind of suggestion of... You know, because they're reactionary. egalitarian or peaceful or, you know, whatever. Yeah, reactionary, exactly. And uh, they're very much into process and experts, and they distrust the mob. They think that the mob is all a bunch of racists and authoritarians hmm. and that would, they love the courts, Although they certainly don't love, you know, they love the courts in principle. They don't love the courts well, that we the have. courts Because have, they're experts. Have intellectual cover, too. In law school, I learned, um, basically, you know, if you change, no matter what your assumption is, you can come to any conclusion about anything you want. But at least they have to write it in a paragraph format with, yeah. like, citations. Yes, and that's very, liberals like that stuff, you know, if you just come up with lots of citations. Um, but they, they just love elite bodies, but which gets us back to where Hayek and all they too they had they had a similar view that they they want you know, the, the WTO for example, World Trade Organization, or its predecessor GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, are all about rules mm -hmm. and rules administered by expert bodies who were you know political actors but removed from what we think of as politics. Mm -hmm. So that they would pass judgment in a very expert fashion with no influence by that untrustworthy mob. So that's one thing that, you know, liberals American style have in common with these neoliberals European style is a distrust of the mob and a belief in rules and institutions that are uh, largely removed from popular influence. Have you ever read Nicholas Belieb's um, book, Skin in the Game? No, I haven't. Uh, so he actually explains kind of why... 
For example, um, he, he, I made up this example, so, um, but this is not an example he uses. Well, like, no one thinks about droning a wedding in Yemen. But if it's your daughter's wedding, you're not going to drone that, right? And so that's when you have skin in the game. So that's why he thinks like everyone who's like in power or in Congress or anything needs to have skin in the game where it will actually affect them. And then and only then will we get, he thinks that is more important than any other qualification of like studying at Harvard or. Yeah. yeah. Well, was, uh, I noticed Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was saying that Congress should not get his paychecks while the government is shut. Uh-huh. Uh, that, that, that would be a little skin in the game for them. Exactly. And I think, and so I think I wonder, like liberals seem to not understand that without skin in the game, these abstract decisions seem to. Well, I remember Hillary talked about skin in the game, but that by that Did she, she? Meant, uh, she didn't want people to have free health care because you have to pay for it or going to college. It shouldn't be free tuition. You should have to pay for it. So that would give you skin in the game. Oh, I guess you can talk about it in that way, too. Yeah, that's what that's the kind of skin in the game they like. Oh, but only th- that's only skin in the game for half the people. or th- Yeah, for the people who don't have very much need their skin, <laughs> need to volunteer their skin. Whereas, you know, the people who have a lot need to be protected. Yeah, th- that's what, at this point, do you think it is a cognitive capture where they just can't see the world? Like, even today, I see the centrists, even like in France and Macron, like all over the world, they seem to repeat the same mistakes over and over. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really a fascinating thing. It's... um. What the, the Freudian me calls a compulsion to repeat. You know, it's like they just, and they can't break out of it. Yes. And the, the whole Russia obsession turns, serves as some kind of psychological crutch or um, blinders or something that keep people from that, that kind of center left tendency, which you know, dominated politics around the world in the 90s and into mm-hmm. the 2000s, which are now on the ropes and falling apart completely everywhere. Um, but they just cannot see that their policies are extremely unpopular because they've delivered nothing but uh, uncertainty and downward mobility to a large part of the population. Mm-hmm. So uh, they, they, yeah, I know what it is that they just they can't get their heads around that and they can't see it straight. So it's all Putin's fault. Oh yeah, things have gotten so bad with the yellow vests in France that um, Hollande warned Macron that in France we behead our kings. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes. Um, poor Hollande. Um, so I, I guess for me, I'm trying to figure out like, how were they like, to me, it seems a lot of the downward spiral for the American working class came with the free trade agreements with NAFTA and the WTO. What were they envisioning, you think, like in an ideal world of how, to me, it seems obvious that when you mo- have m- labor that's stuck and goods that are moving, They'll go to the cheapest place for labor. Mm-hmm. So what was the original vision? Was that the original vision they used? Or was there like an ideological vision they had? Well, I think a lot of them actually believed their doctrine that uh, freedom of movement of capital would provide the best of all possible worlds for everyone. <laughs> and, uh, and I think a lot of them really believed it. I don't know. I suppose some of them are quite a kind of cynical and say this is the way we can get rich. But, you know, there are just not that many truly cynical people in the world, I don't think. I think most... People want to believe and do the right thing. You know, so they, have, they tell themselves a lot of stories about what the right thing is. And so they think that this is going to work out, you know, all going to work out. And I think part of the problem with their understanding what this rebellion against them is all about is that they still like, well, well it was supposed to work, you know? I don't understand why it worked. Well, it's like that moment after the 2008 financial crisis um, hit, Alan Greenspan gave congressional testimony 
and his picture's on the front page of the Financial Times. And my kid, who was then, I guess, three years old, said, uh, why is this man sad? <laughs> <laughs> There's like this picture of Greenspan looking very distressed. And, but he was saying, like, I don't understand what happened. You know, this like violates everything I believe and it shouldn't have happened is basically what he was saying. And it did. So it shook his faith maybe for a year. But, you know, now he's probably back to where he was. Like, it's very hard for people to uh, admit they're wrong in such profound ways. Yeah. Um, well, actually, in 2008, one thing, though, that a lot of us missed is Wall Street kept on pouring money into Obama. Like, why would they pour money into somebody who's a threat? You know what I mean? Well, they knew he wasn't a threat. Exactly. Yeah. And a lot of the... Us well, he's an interesting character. Like, you know, look, FDR came out of the elite, mm-hmm. very upper class guy. And he gave that famous speech in 1936 where he said, no one has ever been hated by the rich as much as me, and I welcome their hatred. They're unanimous in their hatred yeah. for me, and I welcome their hatred. That is so much the opposite of what Obama was like. Yeah. But Obama was a fairly modest origin, not poor. His mother worked for the Ford Foundation, which is an interesting thing. Mm-hmm. She was in Indonesia just after Ford helped Suharto's coup. Mm-hmm. So who knows what she was up to. <laughs> but he's groomed by elites from the first. He got to Harvard, you know, Harvard Law School. He got like, his mysterious community organizing career, which people in Chicago told me that nobody ever had much evidence he was doing anything. Yeah. Um, and then a professor as uni- at yeah. university. It was Chicago. University of Chicago, yeah. Which is very right-wing in law, in yeah. law school terms, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, you know, I'm not going to disparage the guy. He's very talented. I mean, a very smart fellow and, you know, extremely eloquent and a you know, really good writer. You know, there's, you know, there's a lot to him. But they knew he was safe, and he was just the kind of figure they needed. They needed somebody who was, looked like, we're, we're not bigots after all. We can elect this <laughs> black guy with a funny name. And so that, you know, that, that, that made everybody feel good. But also he's going to give people the idea illusion that something was going to get better. You know, I think most of the people who voted for Obama and got enthusiastic about him in 08 were looking for a more peaceful and more egalitarian world. Absolutely. And they didn't get that, you know? So they also probably knew that he would protect, uh, that there's that famous moment where he um, told all the bankers, you know, it's done the only thing standing between you and the pitchforks. And he was going to stop them. You know, he was very aware of that. Like three months after taking office, you know, they had just passed the stimulus bill. He or somebody speaking for him called up David Brooks and said, oh, we want to like, deal with entitlements next. So it's not like we're going to um, have this permanent new regime of you know, activist government spending. We'll do that stimulus package in the crisis. But you know, after that, so everything is fixed. We're just going to go back to talking about cutting Social Security and Medicare. So he made it clear that he was a safe bet for elites. And then you know, he did say that one but he called bankers fat cats in a speech at Cooper Union in like 2009. And, then they had a and so they Wall Street hated him after that, just because he'd been so rude to them. I know. But, you know, like, the stock market did wonderfully well under him. He, like, saved them He gave city banks, he, like, like, he poured money into their coffers. Yeah, like they just got tons and tons of money from the Treasury and also from the Federal Reserve. Oh, it was a successful rescue operation. But, you know, nothing changed. It was, like, basically they were trying to restore the status quo ante. Uh, they mostly did. Uh, and uh, obviously, people got very disappointed. Anybody who voted for him expecting that more peaceful, more egalitarian mm-hmm. world and found out that's not what they got. Instead, they got a more unequal world mm-hmm. and a very visible proof that the government would go to all lengths to save bankers and no, no lengths at all to save their houses. Um, Absolutely. You know, they got a very 
pungent object lesson in just what the priorities of the system were, and became very distrustful of that kind of, you know, that kind of liberalism that Obama represented. Um, so, you know, if you wonder where Trump came from, a lot of it is the disappointment with how Obama turned out. Your book about um, my turn. Ah, yes. My, uh, Unless my you've been, new, yeah, yeah, do talk about that real quickly. Yeah, I, uh, I did a piece for Harper's, which is a cover story in, I think, November 2014, uh, called Stop Hillary. Mm-hmm. That was their title, not mine. But then uh, I got turned that into a book. And um, it was very critical of what Hillary was all about. I thought uh, I, she's had a deep conservative streak. She was, uh, the whole Clinton Foundation was this big shakedown operation, <laughs> a deeply corrupt shakedown operation. Uh, you know, she was deeply dishonest and empty character. You know, she's, she's very smart. She knows what she's doing. I'm not going to say she's like, she's not, you know, she's not, she's no dope by any means. But I also thought she was a really bad candidate because, and, and she was like, likely to lose. So that, that um, email discussion list for liberals I mentioned earlier, things really blew up with them when I said I was doing this Harper's piece mm-hmm. and then I was going to turn it into a book. And they thought, like, what are you? Republican? You mm-hmm. want, this is when I remember I thought Cruz was going to win. Like, what, what, you want Ted Cruz? Mm-hmm. I said, you know, we differ in the politics. You know, we don't share my political critique of Hillary, but she's a terrible candidate and nobody likes her. Uh, it's a fact that her poll numbers rise when she's out of public view yes. and fall when she comes into public view. It's really remarkable. Like, more people see her, the less they like her. So, um, you know, I said, you know, politics aside, you may regret this because mm-hmm. she's a terrible candidate. And like, obviously she lost to a guy, like she lost to the most unpopular candidate in the history of polling. So like she was the second most unpopular candidate in the history oh. of polling. So, but uh, the, the inability of these people to understand just how disliked she was. And there is no doubt there's a degree of misogyny in yeah. the contempt for her. And like, it makes me uncomfortable to see when people go after her but, in, in that way. I mean, but that's not the full story. It's like, Benazir Bhutto was able to win when there's at least one third of her country with the Taliban. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, she just, yes, misogyny is real, but she's also a very poor candidate. Like, nobody wanted her. And by the end of that campaign, everybody's completely sick of her. And now, you know, we're living with Trump uh, as a result of that. Um, who knows what the long term results of this will be, but. Trump is doing an awful lot of damage while he's in office, uh, and uh, it's a lot of it is her fault. One last question: what can, <clears throat> what can we do as leftists because we don't really have the same amount of money being poured in to create leftist institutions to rival the right? Yeah, that's something I think about a lot. That, for example, you know, the right did a very sophisticated, uh, long-term job of taking over the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. The Republican Party used to be kind of a moderate suburban formation based a lot in the Northwest and upper Midwest, the Northeast and the upper Midwest. And then it be, you know, over time it became this deeply reactionary party, heavily based in the South mm-hmm. and you know, like deeply racist. Barry Goldwater was the first Republican ever to vote against the civil rights bill mm-hmm. in 1964. So that was a big change. And that was a sign of what was happening in the Republican party was that it's becoming this deeply reactionary formation. But there were, the right had been, plotting to take this thing over since the 50s. Mm-hmm. Like they were coming out of the New Deal, uh, coming out of World War II. They, they hated Eisenhower because Eisenhower basically accepted that New Deal status mm-hmm. quo, and they hated him for it. And so you know, they, they just went to work trying to transform this institution from within. I was like, 
I know all the Democratic Party is a really terrible institution in a lot of ways, and the death of so much progressive politics in the U.S. On the other hand, the way the electoral laws are written in the U.S., it's extremely difficult to launch a third party mm -hmm. and get elected. So I think, wouldn't it be nice if like people around DSA and like, you know those kinds of social democrats and actual socialists beyond could take over the Democratic Party in a similar way to the way the right took over the Republican Party? And every now and then I think, okay, that maybe that's possible. But I don't see that, well, there's the, the money issue is one thing, because, mm -hmm. you know, they had patrons uh, who, were, who were supporting this activity, but also um, that kind of long-term institutional ideological discipline mm -hmm. that the right had, I just don't see on the left in such a way. And um, you know, part of that is good, you know, the suspicion of undemocratic processes and secrecy and all these things, like, Everyone wants to do everything in the open, and nobody wants anything that's top down. But I don't know. You need institutions, and you need some kind of something resembling party discipline mm -hmm. to to change anything. Uh, and a lot of the times, people on the left are more interested in taking the right stance than they are in actually achieving power. Mm -hmm. And a lot of like left wing rhetoric is just designed to make you feel good about yourself, <laughs> more moral than everyone else. And I don't know. That's not the way the right change the world. They, you, know, you have to look at the way the right changed the world from the 50s through the 80s, and, and now it's looking pretty rotten, and who knows where we're going from here, but you know, they had quite a run for several decades, mm -hmm. and a lot of it was because of that rigid discipline. And one of the interesting things about the takeover of the Republican Party is that it was led by people who had been Trotskyists and communists in the 30s. Wow. And so they brought with them this notion of ideological and party discipline, mm -hmm. and were able to. Um, you know, they had a they had a goal, they had a strategy, and they stuck to it in, 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 with great precision. And I don't see anything quite like that in the contemporary left, which makes me sad. But I think that's what needs we need we need institutions and we need people. Something like party and ideological discipline that we just don't have. And, uh, you know, we love our, well, our self-expression and we all want to be free to choose in our own way. But, uh, yeah, that's not the way you change the world. Okay. Well, thank you so much for having this interview with us. And how do people find you on Twitter? Um, Doug Henwood on Twitter. Okay. And your book is available. Is there an, oh, I always ask this. What is the alternative ways for people who don't want to support Amazon to download your book? Oh, uh, well, it, um, it was originally published by Aura Books, uh, but I think it might still be on the Aura Books website for download, and that's just direct. Uh, you can get ebook or a, 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 a paper. <laughs> they do custom printing. It's not, they don't, oh, nice. It's the Aura Books model. So, you, you know, a week or two later, you get the book in the mail. But so I think Aura Books is probably the way to do it. Okay, well, thank you, and I hope you can come again. Anytime. Okay. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.